economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Andrew Lawn. Andrew is a UX writer at Picatail, which is, and I quote, an educational app designed to first aid children in learning to read and then promote within them a lifelong love of reading. He also delivers training courses on designing better academic posters and effective digital communications at the University of East Anglia. And in his spare time, Andy is assistant manager of Norwich United FC under 18s and a co-founder of the Norwich City fanzine along come Norwich. Finally, he's the author of We Lose Every Week, The History of Football Chanting, which was published by Ockley Books in 2021 and will be the main topic of our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you ever so much for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? My first sports team was my local team, which is Norwich City. At the time, we were in the second division of English football and not very successful at all. But my father was a steward at the football ground, so he would take me even before I could walk in the push chair, and I would sit with him in his turnstile while he would let people in, and I'd just do a colouring book or something, and then we'd go out and watch the football together afterwards. So that's how I really got into football. And then in later life, I've come to really follow St Pauli in the German second Bundesliga. So second, what is your favourite political song? I think my favourite political song comes from St Pauli, and it's Never Again Fascism, Never Again War, Never Again Third Division. And I like it because it throws two really serious topics together and then lumps them in with getting relegated from the second Bundesliga into the third division. And I like the way that 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 sort of jokes around, but also has a kind of serious message at the same time. Right. And finally, what is your favourite political book? I think probably 1984. I really, really like Grapes of Wrath as well, which I think are both excellent ways at being political, but with fiction. In terms of non-fiction, I've just started reading Utopia for Realists by Rutger Bergman, and I'm really enjoying that as well. Excellent. So you co-founded the Norwich City fanzine Alongcom Norwich. What is the key purpose of the fanzine, and does it have a political bent? Absolutely. So it started off, Along Come Norwich, as a place for me and my friend John, essentially to rant about what it's like to support a football team who aren't particularly good and what that experience is like. So it was ranting about performances being poor or the manager being poor. But increasingly, we found that what we were actually mostly annoyed about was the fact that the atmosphere at Carrow Road was increasingly becoming more and more sterile and it felt more and more like going to football was an obligation rather than something you enjoyed. So we became a kind of campaign group, if you like, to try and improve the atmosphere at Carroll Road. And what we wanted to do was create an environment and an atmosphere that was intimidating for opposition fans, but kind of carnivalesque and really inclusive for home fans. So we bought our natural kind of political outlook to that and we started to invest in flags and banners and things that had this kind of inclusive feel to them so we done one for example that had the words Norwich City a home for everyone 
And then it had a picture of Delia Smith, who's the owner, as a woman in football. It had a picture of Mario Vrancic, who at the time was one of our central midfielders, but in his past he was a refugee. It had a picture of Justin Fashionu, who's famous in English football for being the first player to come out as gay, and he played for Norwich. And it had a picture of Rule Fox, who's a Norwich City icon and a black footballer. And essentially the point of that message was... These are all the people who, as Norwich fans, we love, and they're all from completely different backgrounds, and this is a place where they can feel at home. So the kind of the point was to improve the atmosphere at Carrow Road, but behind that was this message of inclusivity and how can we make Carrow Road a place where everybody in Norwich who's affiliated with Norwich or supports Norwich wants to be, wants to come, and wants to come and sing and make an atmosphere and be involved. So you recently published a book, We Lose Every Week, The History of Football Chanting, What made you decide to write a book about football, Chen? It's a long story, but essentially, when I was at university, I studied politics and I was really stuck for what my dissertation topic might be, what my thesis might be. And at the time that I was working on trying to figure out what that would be, I went to a Norwich Ipswich derby match. And at the same time, there was a serial killer on the loose in Ipswich who was targeting sex workers and had killed five or six people in the month before the game. And I remember being at the game and singing, where's your pros? He's gone. Where's your pros? He's gone. And I caught myself singing it and I kind of heard it at the same time that I was singing it. And it suddenly dawned on me, like, what are we singing? How is this okay? I looked around at the fellow fans and there were men, there were women, there were children, there were grandparents. It was a full sort of cross section of society and everybody is singing this same song. And then I looked at the Ipswich fans and again, you got the full range of society and they were laughing. And I thought, why is this okay? Why is the fact that we're in a football stadium making this awful song about the murder of sex workers funny rather than offensive? And you couldn't do that in a supermarket. You couldn't go up to someone and say the same thing. It would just be completely out of order. So I thought this might make an interesting topic for my thesis. Started to read up around it. And all of the literature that I could find on football chanting was connected to hooliganism which I knew from my own personal experience that 5% of football chanting maybe is awful and connected to hooliganism, but 95% of it is not. It's funny. It's community-led. It's all about kind of inclusivity and being a group. So I wanted to tell that story, I guess, of why I thought that football chanting wasn't this awful thing that was only connected to hooliganism and it hadn't been done before. I take two points away that I would like my listeners to get, particularly those studying political science, is that first, politics goes well beyond political institutions like parliaments and parties. And there's a lot of politics in culture, including so-called low culture. And I really, really like that you did that within the framework of political science. And the second is that football is so much more than hooliganism. As you pointed it out, the media still very much perceives or portrays, I would rather say, football through hooliganism, even though it is such a small part of the game. So what is the origin of the football chant? When and where did it originate? So the very first football chant was actually written by a famous English composer, Edward Elgar, back in Victorian Britain. And he was a Wolverhampton Wanderers fan. And it was serenading a player of the time called Billy Malpass. And it was called He Bangs the Lever for the Goal. Unfortunately, it didn't really take off. He wrote it and published it in the Times, but it it didn't go any further than that. So the first chant that's still sung today is actually my hometown club of Norwich, which is a nice link and partly why I wanted to tell that story. So that was written for, at the time, a celebratory dinner to celebrate all the sporting clubs in the city coming together at the end of the year. 
And it was actually before Norwich City as a single club was formed. So what happened was this song was sung at this celebratory dinner. And then a couple of years later, all of those clubs who were at that dinner kind of got merged into one football team, which was Norwich City. And the author of the song was a director of the club. And it was kind of brought with them as a kind of unifying symbol of Norwich as a city and all these different clubs coming together to play under one umbrella. And at the time, it was the only one. It was the only chant that there was and fans sort of sung it because it had that same effect of unifying them as they came together from supporting different local teams, be they works teams or groups of friends and stuff. Famously, one of them was a group of teachers who came together and formed the club that we know today. So they brought the song with them as a kind of unifier effect. Then what you had in early 20th century was other clubs started to have very parochial songs about their locality. So in Newcastle, you had Bladen Racers. In Portsmouth, you had Play Up Pompey. And they were very much about that place and only about that place. And it was only in really the 1960s when you started to get away fans going to games that that started to change. And what happened then was Liverpool were very famous in terms of Cilla Black and the Beatles for their musical output as a city around the world. Right. And Liverpool fans started to kind of sing their songs as a kind of celebratory, you know, Liverpool for these amazing songs. We're also brilliant at football. Let's bring those things together. And that's when it started to change into the more pop song kind of related tunes that we have today. Right. And you already spoke about the importance of locality. Related to that was the importance of rivalry. A lot of the chants came out of rivalry between teams like, for example, your own Norwich City and Ipswich Town. Can you speak a little bit more to rivalry and football chanting? Absolutely. So what you had with Liverpool bringing their pop culture to the terraces, you also had the arrival of away fans. Now, Liverpool were really good on the pitch. And what people started to do is they equated Liverpool's success on the pitch with their also being loud. So Everton fans, for example, they were from the same city and they would take chants that Liverpool fans were singing, but change the words and make them more about the club or about their fans. So they weren't singing them verbatim like Liverpool were. They were changing them slightly. And now it was a case of us and them. So we're seeing something that you're doing well and we're taking that and we're making it ours and we're making it so we're doing that well. What you then had was Margaret Thatcher's Britain and the kind of the rise of a disaffected youth who were going to football matches. And this aspect of chanting and using it against one another was when it started to become a kind of, I call it in the book, an arms race of abuse. They kind of started to use chanting as a weapon rather than just as a purely celebratory thing. And it was still that creation of an us and a them, but rather than celebrating the us, it's now starting to change and starting to become about attacking the them. You already said that locality becomes a little bit less important when you also have away supporters. But of course, over the last couple of decades, football has become more and more corporate and more global. Stadiums are moving away from the city centers. Big teams now have a lot of Japanese tourists and like others on the stands. It has been gentrified. It's become practically impossible to afford tickets for Premier League games if you're working class. How has that affected football chanting? Well, I think it's affected it in a variety of ways. The first and foremost, I think, is by pricing out younger people you are losing some of that kind of natural energy that young people bring. So the first thing is you're pricing out the people who are going to make the most noise by increasing ticket prices. 
Now, increased ticket prices came about primarily from the move to banning standing in the top two divisions of English football and making them all-seater. Now, the other effect that all-seater stadiums have is it kind of limits the natural osmosis of people who want to be around people who are like-minded. So before on an open terrace, you could have a group of people that wanted to sing and then a group of people who perhaps didn't want to sing and chant, and they would naturally gravitate to each other. And if you were on one side of the terrace and you wanted to sing, but the singing group was on the other side of the terrace, you would kind of naturally move across and those groups coalesced and it made everything a bit louder. All Seater Stadium stops that from happening. So if you want to sing, but you are in an area where nobody else is singing, it's very difficult for you as an individual to stand up and make a lot of noise on your own if you're the only one doing it. And a lot of chanting is that thing of anonymity and it being in a crowd. So you're part of something bigger. It's not just you on your own shouting something. It's you as a collective. So by stopping people from naturally gravitating towards the places where they wanted to be, you had the effect of splitting up all the people who wanted to make the noise. And I think that's the biggest thing in terms of affecting the atmosphere, in, particularly in English football, is you no longer have that ability to choose whether or not you want to sing or not, because it's very, very difficult to move around, particularly in the Premier League. And I think that's where countries like Germany have got it right, and they've kept their terracing for their louder areas. And hopefully the return of safe standing in England might have that effect too. But essentially, yeah, what you've done is you've priced out the people who are most likely to make the noise and then you've stopped them from coalescing with each other. You've physically separated them from each other. So why do fans sing? In the book, you write a lot about anthropologists who talk about tribal meaning of things like that. But what is the key role of chanting in the stadium and for the fans? There's a lot of reasons why fans sing. I think the main one is it just feels good. There's a real endorphin rush. It's why people sing in the shower. It's that thing of just making noise and being happy makes you feel good. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, as you touched on, is that kind of tribal identity creation. And it allows you to express an identity that is similar to the person stood next to you. You might be from completely different walks of life. You have nothing else in common except the football team you support. But by both singing the same song, you come together. And that is an essential aspect of football chanting. Rationally, there's no reason to follow 11 men 300 miles around the country to lose 4-0 and pay for the privilege to do that and give up your entire weekend. There's no rational basis for that. So you're doing it because you want to be part of something else. And one of the best and easiest and most visible ways to express that you are part of that bigger collection is to sing and to share these stories. And that's the other aspect is a lot of chanting is passing down stories of former players or former glories or times when your team was successful long before you were there watching them yourself. So Liverpool singing a lay, a lay, a lay is talking all about different Champions League successes they've had up until this point. There's loads and loads of examples of Manchester United fans singing about the Busby Babes and stuff like that, where almost nobody in the stadium was actually physically there, but they've had that cultural memory passed down through chanting. And again, it's just another way of storytelling, of binding us together and of creating an us in a kind of, I think Benedict Anderson called it an imagined community. Well, it is an imagined community and that's the way you unimagine it and you make it real. Now, one of the things I really like about the book is that you link chanting to different factors, including class and masculinity. Can you say a little bit more about those relationships? Yeah, absolutely. So the other aspect of a football crowd 
one of the reasons you need it to bind you together is it's drawing people from all aspects of society. So you have lots and lots of individuals. And as a result of that, the crowd is made up of lots of different aspects of people's identity as an individual. And then what you get is different aspects of those aspects start to get played up. So even within the context of a game, you might have a chant that is hyper-masculine because in that moment, masculinity is seen by the crowd or by the context of the situation as a key identity that you want to express. And then in another moment, you might have something entirely different that's most relevant, like loyalty or success, or there's another aspect of your personality that's coming through. And because you've got all of these different identities coming together, it's then very context specific as to which one is going to be displayed. I think masculinity is a really interesting one because previously the majority of football crowds were male. And because of that link with hooliganism and that kind of code of expected behavior within football, masculinity was seen as a kind of key identity that you wanted to portray yourself as having. Because if what you were using chanting for was to use it as a weapon, then you're using it in a kind of violent sense. And naturally, masculinity and violence tend to go together. So you're expressing this kind of masculinity. Whereas if you're not using chanting as a weapon and you're using it to celebrate a location or a success, then masculinity is much less a part of that. So I think it's all about identity within the context of a particular moment. What aspect of your personality within the crowd do you want to celebrate at that moment? That might be horrible. It might be toxic masculinity. It might be loyalty. It might be any number of things. But you've got all of these different elements coming together and then one of them being expressed. Now, you came to football chants in part through your study of political science. Can you give some examples of football chants that address specific political issues? At the moment in the UK, you're seeing a lot of football chants specifically about Boris Johnson and his handling of both the coronavirus pandemic and the lying that went on around the Conservative Party holding Christmas parties at a time when the rest of the country was locked down, and then kind of denying that that had happened, and then being found out that it had definitely happened and they had been caught lying. And as a result, there's a number of football chants now, both at football matches, Leeds, Ellen Road in particular, and also there's a lot of football-style chanting at darts, which is very anti-Boris Johnson, specifically for this moment in time where he's been found out as a liar. Also recently in the news, there's been Leicester fans singing their take on Feed the World, the Christmas song, and their take is Feed the Scousers. Now, it's not just Leicester, but Leicester recently played Liverpool, so it's Leicester who are in the news for singing it. But there's this idea of, again, adapting an old song, Feed the World, making it antagonistic, Feed the Scousers, and there's a suggestion that somehow that people from Liverpool are poorer than people from Leicester. Now, the reason that's made the news now, whereas it hasn't for the years and years and years it's been sung before that, is that Liverpool fans are very famous for running food banks, such as Hunger Has No Colours, which is a cross-football initiative to collect food for food banks. So there's been this real backlash that Leicester fans have kind of taken the piss out of Liverpool for a thing that is affecting the entire country at the moment. And there's this real push on that political situation that we've created where the rise of food banks in the UK has happened. Now it's not okay to laugh at that. Whereas 10 years ago, when there weren't any food banks, that song wouldn't have made the news because it was just a run-of-the-mill song that almost every club sang. Then there's really overt examples. So 
couple of years ago in Panathinaikos. They had a Champions League game against Chelsea and their fans displayed a banner that read Macedonia is only one and it is here. And it referenced the political spat between Greece and Macedonia over the name Macedonia. And they were chanting about that. And Panathinaikos, the club, had to come out and say, our fans represent us. We represent the region. Within our region, that is what we believe. So we can't condemn them for singing this song that caused political tension between the two countries. A lot of the singing is kind of making fun of others. It is about boasting about your loyalty, your masculinity. But of course, the boundaries between making fun of others and abuse and between masculinity and sexism or homophobia are particularly thin. What is the situation with regard to debates about what is acceptable and particularly on the stands within football fan communities rather than the state? I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of football chanting as well as there is this real fine line between what is funny and what is offensive. And what is funny to one person might be offensive to somebody else. It might even be funny and offensive at the same time. So you've got that really difficult balance of what is funny and what is not okay. I don't know that you can draw a hard line and say this is okay and this isn't. And I'll give you some examples for why I don't think you can draw that line. My personal take would be if you are laughing at somebody for something they chose, then that's okay. So haircuts, clothing, something like that, then that's fine to laugh at. If you're laughing at something that somebody didn't choose, race, sexuality, etc., then that's not okay. Now, that sounds like that's an okay distinction. If they chose it, then it's fine. If they didn't choose it, then it's not fine. But then you have things like, weight or baldness. Now, I didn't choose to go bald. I am bald. But I also don't mind people laughing at that. It's not a thing that I'm sensitive about. With my weight, I'm probably slightly overweight. Now, you could argue that I chose that because I choose what goes in my body and I choose how much exercise I do. But it's a very, very fine line between did you choose to be overweight or is there more to it than that? There's all sorts of mental health issues. There's all sorts of sociological issues. There's all sorts of financial issues at play there. So whether or not someone chose to be the weight they are is not a thing you can easily decide. So where does that fall in the spectrum? I don't think there is an answer. I think you have to do it on a personal basis of, is this okay to you? And do you think it's going to be okay to somebody else? Is this just unnecessarily harmful? And if it is, don't do it. And I think the rule for me with football chanting would be the same rule as it is in sort of everyday life. It's don't be a dick. There's taking the piss, which is absolutely fine, but then there's being a dick. And there's no easy way to write a rule to say, this is taking the piss, this is being a dick. But you kind of do know within yourself whether or not something is okay. So I would follow that kind of outlook of if you think it's not okay, don't do it. Because it's really, really difficult to police. And I think fans are getting better at policing it themselves because I don't think there's a lot that the state can do. So in the UK, homophobic chanting isn't illegal, whereas racist chanting is. And yes, there was a reduction in racist chanting after it was made illegal. And homophobic chanting hasn't seen the same decrease. But it hasn't eradicated racist chanting by any stretch of the imagination. So it's certainly not solved the problem. So there's not a lot that the state can do because you've got 5,000 people singing it. So it has to be self-policed. And I think that has to come down to the individual. What do the states do and what do leaks and clubs do? Is there any enforcement? 
I think there is of racism because it is illegal, then you can kind of enforce that. So there are banning orders issued by clubs when they identify people who are singing racist songs and exactly as they should be. The same should be true of homophobia, but currently isn't. And clubs can ban fans. You can be arrested, all of those things. But there isn't a lot you can do to police it, I don't think. It's got to be managed within the fan base. Egypt, actually, they blamed football chanting for the Arab Spring in some ways. They blamed the ultra culture for causing and fermenting that. And their response was to arrest a lot of ultras and throw them in prison. And now in Egypt, you have to have an ID card to go to a game. And the idea is that if you have to give your ID before you go to the game and then you get caught singing something that's anti-government, then you're much easier to arrest and throw in jail. That's quite an extreme way for the state to try and manage what you are and aren't singing. Yeah, Turkey actually did the same for the same reason. Finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about football chanting? I think the thing that we touched on earlier that you said as well, like the perception in the media of football chanting is that it's very aggressive, very masculine, very hooligan led and is kind of loutish. And absolutely, that is a small part of it, but it is a small part of it. Most football chanting is really positive. You think back to the Euros when Christian Eriksen collapsed between Denmark and Finland and the fans both came together and sang his name. Now, I think that's probably the only example of positive football chanting that I've ever seen in the media. But that wasn't a surprise to anyone who's a football fan. Like Anyone who follows football would absolutely expect that to have happened. And there's another example just this week from my own team, Norwich City. We played at Crystal Palace and we lost 3-0 and were absolutely dreadful, as we have been all season. And there was a minority of fans who picked on our Chelsea low-knee player, Billy Gilmore. And the chant was essentially, fuck off back to Chelsea. Because he's been, he's been rubbish. And he was picked out and he was sang about that. And it caused an absolute storm in the national media. Lots of people talking about how Chelsea should recall him, how it's completely unfair for Norwich fans to pick on him when it's a wider issue with the club, all of which is perfectly fair. But it was one song for about 30 seconds. During the exact same game, there was a chant that was essentially, let's pretend we've scored a goal. And then a countdown from 10. And when it got to zero, all of the Norwich fans acted as if we'd scored a goal because it was the only way that they were ever going to celebrate scoring a goal. And they did that. It got a really good reception. The Crystal Palace fans were applauding it and they kind of really appreciated it. There was a nice little moment of camaraderie and that sort of sense of, yes, being a football fan is very rarely a joyful experience in terms of success. You're more often than not you lose, especially as a Norwich fan or a Crystal Palace fan. But that didn't get any coverage in the press. Now, that was sung for probably three or four minutes and was a much nicer example where both clubs came together and kind of enjoyed football for what it is, which is a spectacle. But the horrible chant made loads of headlines. Now, they were both from the same game, same people, but completely different contexts and then portrayed very differently in the media. One's ignored and one is highlighted as football fans, loutish, thuggish, unnecessarily aggressive, all of those things. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. You can follow Andrew Lawn on Twitter at at Andrew underscore Lawn and learn more about his fanzine at www.aloncomnorwich.com. Please also buy his book, We Lose Every Week, The History of Football Chanting, at or through your independent bookstore. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonuts, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. 
If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading melody later. I'm seeing down the dunk out. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.